Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. series home for the holidays and we're sort of we're taking three um, vignettes or three um, pictures or illustrations of holiday themes that you actually find in lots and lots of films Um, and this week the theme that we're dealing with is the idea of the soldier who is coming home for the holidays and we come up with these titles uh, months in advance for each of our series and then they never make sense when I get to actually what I've prepared to teach sometime on that Sunday morning. Um, and, and, and so instead of um, the wounded soldier, I'm going with the title, and this is not the same as first service's title, in case you were wondering, yeah. Um, no, but the winter soldier, that's, that's where I'm going. Speaking of, um, uh, Christmas and Congo bars. Not conga lines, but Congo bars. I um, recently had a conversation with my mom and discovered um, that uh, my dad is a prolific writer. Now, um, how many of you were alive in 1969? And I'm not, I'm not raising my hand, but showing you how to raise your hand. Um, uh, you were alive in 1969. Um, how many of you were 17 years old or older in 1969? You can still raise your hand. It's okay. I, I believe in you. Um, uh, it maybe if you were at that age, maybe you remember what was happening Thanksgiving Day, 1969. I can tell you, um, maybe you're like my dad. My dad can tell you exactly what was happening and exactly where he was on Thanksgiving Day, 1969, because he was in the jungles of Vietnam. And I was talking with my mom about these letters that my dad had written to her over the years. And in particular, the letters that he had written before they were married and while he was in Vietnam. And I asked her, I said, could I get my hands on the holiday letters that dad wrote to you? I was shocked. I was amazed at how much my dad had written. I mean, if you know my dad, apparently writing is his language um, because he doesn't talk a whole lot, but he wrote a lot to her while he was there. And as I was reading through those letters, I made this connection between this deep longing to be home for the holidays and yet this desire for people to understand what was actually happening where you were. I want to read some excerpts from the letters, and just in case you know my parents, I can tell you in advance, yes, he gave me permission, much to my shock. Dear Nelda, that's my mom would be awkward if it wasn't, but (laughs) this was before they were married. Thanksgiving, November 28th, 1969. Dear Nelda, it's Thanksgiving night there, I think. It's been raining all day, and I've been lying in the hooch trying to catch up on my sleep. 
Mostly I just think about what it would be like to be with you again. Right now I'm trying to smoke a huge cigar. I knew it. <laughs> a huge cigar with one of the other gun chiefs that he gave to me. His wife just had a baby boy, his first one. I think maybe we've gotten rid of all the rats. Maybe they drowned. I haven't seen any for the past two days. I heard two rats fighting on guard. I was the one on guard, not them, last night. Maybe they'll be like people and get rid of each other. We're supposed to go on another raid around the 1st of December. I don't think my fun will be going this time, though, which is fine with me. I made a calendar yesterday of the days I have left. It took a whole page to make it. Time is going so slow now. I don't know what's wrong with me. It's been eight days since I've written you or anyone else. I know it would disappoint me if you didn't write me. I love you very much, and you are in my thoughts all the time. I want to say some things to you, but I don't know how you'll respond, so I don't. Nothing will make me so happy as when I can be with you again and we can share things. Can you imagine how happy we're going to be? I love you, Bernard. Early December, 1969. My dear Nelda, tomorrow, rain or shine, we get back to work. We have to clear out a bunch of underbrush and stuff around the fire base so that we can have clear fields of fire. I hope we don't have to use them. We haven't done much shooting in about two weeks. I don't know whether it's because of the weather or there's just nothing going on. As for something special I'd really like for Christmas, I'd like you to think about us and be happy. I'd like to see you smile just for me. I'd like for you to say a prayer for me. I would like pictures, but that's about all that I know that you could send me, except food. I really like the brownies or whatever they were that you first sent. I think you called them Congo bars. It's almost time for me to go on guard. I love you, Bernard. December 11th, 1969. My dear Nelda, it's 2030 hours, December 11th. We are in the middle of a fire mission right now, but we don't start shooting again till 2100 hours. I'm getting so military, it scares me. I'll come home and have my mother pulling guard all night and my little brother making police calls. <laughs> we were chasing a rat around outside. Rats and rain are a huge theme in his letters, by the way. We were chasing a rat around outside tonight, and Vio was trying to stomp him and tripped and fell into one of our fighting holes. It's about six feet deep, and he fell in head first. It was really funny, but he was lucky he wasn't hurt. We were laughing so hard the rat got away. <laughs> they were talking about moving us again. I hope not, not in the middle of this monsoon. I'm glad you're feeling better. Take special care of yourself. You are too important. I love you, Bernard. December 16th, 1969. My dear Nelda, I sent you a Christmas card yesterday, and today I got one from the lady at church whose son was killed here. It's another rainy day. Aren't they all? Only this one is worse than usual. Who would want to live in a place like this? Ducks, maybe. I'm pretty down on the weather today. Too many people are starting to get sick. How much of a vacation do you get for Christmas? Don't work all the time. Stay home and rest. Oh, and write me letters. Tell your mother and sister I said hello and wish them a Merry Christmas. Do you have a tree yet? My little brother, Jeff, makes us get one about two weeks in advance. Every day is Christmas for him. It's just that there's a tree for two weeks of the year. I really miss him sometimes. Do you have anything planned for Christmas? Are you going anywhere? I wish I could be there with you, but, I'll be, but there'll be other Christmases. Love, Bernard. 
December 25th, 1969. My dear Nelda, you're probably getting up on Christmas morning. It's Christmas night here. It's been a very lonely Christmas, but then all days are lonely without you. I was up at about four this morning, and I was really sad. I thought about a lot of things, and I got over being so sad. I opened my Christmas presents this morning. You made me very happy. I love you. We may go on a raid tomorrow if the weather is okay. I kind of hope not. I guess I'm getting lazy. We've got our Christmas tree on tonight. Ortiz says I sit around and groove on it. It's really nice. We'll take it down tomorrow. There's not much room in here with the tree. I really like... Sorry, my... It turned off on me. I really like the things you sent me. If you were here, I'd kiss you. I read, I read through the little prints twice. I think I already said it, but have I mentioned I love you? The lights are about to go out, so I'll write more in the morning. Love, Bernard. There's this theme that you pick up on. When you think about things like the soldier who is at battle, who is war fighting, and this longing to be home this time of year in particular, home for the holidays and, and companies like Hallmark, I think this year they came out with 10 new movies built around military families and being home for the holidays, which isn't a lot for Hallmark because they produce 10,000 movies every year, but 10 of them were specifically around this theme. And I was looking at some of the titles of the movies. Here they are, um, A Veteran's Christmas, Holiday for Heroes, they even have one for the Navy crew, USS Christmas, Operation Christmas, and my favorite, which you should probably watch before you let your kids, because I don't know what it's about, but my grown-up Christmas list. There's even a G.I. Joe Home for the Holidays edition action figure. It was made in the 1990s, which isn't that long ago, to be clear. (laughs) But this imagery, this idea of the soldier coming home getting back in time for Christmas morning, for the warmth of the fire and the presents and the gifts. And yet there's also the other side of it. I can hear the longing in my dad's voice, but I can also hear this deep desire for you to understand what I'm experiencing here because there's also a fear in coming home from battle. And that fear is that I'm not sure anyone can understand where I've been, what I've seen, what I've done. Will I fit when I get back? Will there be people who understand me, like the people around me right now understand me? And there can be this tension that creates. There's this longing to be back where you belong, and yet also there's this feeling that I might not be accepted again. I might not feel close again. I might never feel at peace again, at ease again. And as I've been thinking about this and thinking about this series that we're coming into, really it's built around the idea that you can always come home for the holidays. In a place like Alaska, I actually think it's really important for us. It's actually a really pertinent idea that we feel like for many of us, I don't know when the next time I'll get to be home again is. I don't know when the next time I'll get to be back with my family again is. For so many of us, we live so far away, and yet what we discover is that there is another family that is created when we join the family of God. And even inside of that family, we can tend to wonder if after we've been on the battlefield of life, if those people will understand me if they'll receive me, if they'll welcome me, if I'll belong there again, if they knew what I had done, if they had seen where I had been, if they knew what I had seen, maybe they wouldn't want me 
coming home. I want to take a few moments today and I want to look at two stories in the scriptures that really highlight two sides of this idea. The first segment I'm just calling skin and soldiers. And Jesus has just finished preaching his most famous sermon ever. I don't know that he knew it would be the most popular sermon ever. I'm assuming that he did since he's also God. But he preaches what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't title it the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, he didn't give any of his sermons titles, which maybe I shouldn't either. Uh, but he, he got on a mountain and he taught. And Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7 are the contents of what's known often as the manifesto of the kingdom. That this is what the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like. And this is how you live inside of the kingdom of heaven. And this is what the Father is like. And Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are a powerful picture of kingdom life. And then he's coming down off of the mountain. Thousands of people have gathered to hear him preach. I mean, this is the moment where exponential growth in his ministry is possible. They're going to be doing 15 services every Sunday if all of these people stick around. And they're all following Jesus down the mountain. And on the way down the mountain, there's a man who comes to Jesus. Listen to it in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Large crowds followed Jesus as he came down the mountainside. Suddenly, a man with leprosy approached him and knelt before him. I want to just pause there for a second to give you some context. Uh, maybe you've never been around leprosy. I've had the opportunity on several occasions to actually be in leper colonies in India. And, and what I can tell you is um, that even to this day, there is much paranoia and fear surrounding a disease we currently actually have a cure for, and yet there is this deep-rooted fear that I will get it. Well, in Jesus' day, there was no cure for it. In fact, there were explicit laws in Jewish law for how you were supposed to behave if you had contracted leprosy. You could not live in the community with other people. In fact, anytime you came in within a certain distance of other people, you were required by law to yell out at the top of your lungs, unclean, 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 so that everybody knew they were not to get anywhere near you. Jesus just preached a sermon. Thousands of people are around. They're coming down off the mountain, and a man with leprosy approaches Jesus and kneels before him. The Jewish people who are gathered there for this message, the religious leaders and all of the others, know exactly how inappropriate and terrifying this moment is. He knelt before him. Lord, the man said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. This sequence of events here is actually really important. What the man knows is that Jesus does not have to touch him to heal him. Jesus could just speak the word and he would be healed. In fact, the man did not request that Jesus touch him. He only requested that he be healed. Jesus deliberately does something of his own volition that the man has not asked of him and everyone present would be appalled by. Jesus reaches out 
and he touches him. And he does not touch him after his leprosy is healed. The sequence matters. Jesus reaches out and touches this man before. He could have healed the man first. He could have healed him of his leprosy. Everyone saw it just disappear. And then he touches him because he's clean. But Jesus deliberately touches him when he's unclean and then makes him clean. And there's something being communicated in this passage that I think is really, really important. It's this. When we reach for him, he responds with grace for us. He doesn't wait for us to get it all together, which is what we tend to think we need to do before we show up in the room, before we show up at church on a Sunday, is I've got to get it all together, and then I can show up. But what Jesus is obviously declaring here is you just show up in your mess. I've got grace for you if you would just come and kneel before me and ask. It's a really important sequence, but however offensive the Jewish people in the day thought that this particular instance was, He's actually going to do something that's even far more alarming to them. And by the way, I'll just let you know, um, a friend of mine, David Cunningham, who is a film producer, just came out with a brand new film called The Wind and the Reckoning. It's going to be playing in Anchorage this coming Friday at the film festival there, and you can get tickets online and all of that. But it's specifically about what happened on the island of Molokai and the leprosy outbreak that happened then and the horrific way that people with leprosy were treated. If you want to dig deeper into those things. But Jesus is now going to move on into the city, and he's going to end up in a city named Capernaum. And listen to what happens when he gets to Capernaum. Matthew 8, verses 5 through 8. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, Capernaum, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him, Lord, my young servant lies in bed paralyzed and in terrible pain. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. If you think leprosy was bad, for the Jewish people, doing anything kind for a Roman was unthinkable. They were the occupying force. If, if you could imagine for a moment, I had somebody in first service say, nope, can't imagine it, won't imagine it. But imagine that we have been conquered by China. I know some of you in here are like, they already conquered us. They own everything in our country. No, but physically conquered, and now the Chinese flag is flying everywhere you go, and you're living under Chinese rule, and you don't have, as an American, like it actually wouldn't matter what country I picked. You would be like, mm-mm, not happening on my watch, but it happened on their watch. And they have been treated in awful ways by the Romans. And here comes a Roman military official, and he wants Jesus to do something for him. And Jesus doesn't simply say, I'll do it. Jesus says, I'm going to come to your house. I'm going to show up in your living room. I'm going to come and take care of this on site with you. I'm coming to your house for this moment. Now listen to what the Roman soldier says, and this is what I want to key in on. But the officer said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. Most of the time when I read this passage or I teach on this passage, I actually key in specifically on what Jesus is going to key in on the next moment, and that is the faith that this man has. 
He has an understanding of authority and authority structures and power. And he will go on to say, Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house. You can just give the word. I give the word to my soldiers and they do whatever I tell them to. You can just give the word and my servant would be healed. But here's what I want to key in on. This man fundamentally believes that because of who he is, because of what he's done in war, because of what he's seen in war, he is not worthy to have Jesus show up at his house for the holidays. Jesus, if you knew everything I've done, if you knew everything I've seen. And Jesus doesn't argue as to whether he's worthy or not. What Jesus says is in spite of your unworthiness, I'm willing to come to your house. The man then makes this faith declaration about um, who God is and what God can do. And so he actually performs the miracle and the servant is healed from a distance. But then Jesus makes this declaration over this soldier. Matthew 8, 11, And I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. Now listen, all of you who think you got it all figured out, you think you got all the parts and pieces in place, you say all the right things, you show up at church at the right times, maybe you even come to the 8 o'clock service sometimes to show real commitment and to make room for others in the 11 o'clock. It was just for free. I don't know where that came from. Uh, listen, I... I want you to know something. This guy, who you think is an outsider, who isn't worthy and who isn't accepted, we're all in the same boat. And here's what's going to happen in the kingdom of heaven, that Gentiles are going to come from all over the world, and they're going to sit down with your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here's what he's saying. They're going to come home for the holidays and have a celebration with us, that when we respond in humility, no matter where we've been or what we've done, he is going to reserve a seat for us in eternity with him. That's what he's declaring. Which brings me to counting sheep and lighting lamps. Really what I've discovered is this first story actually describes those who are wanting to come home. And this second story that I want to look into actually describes what you can expect when you get home. It's a vivid picture, and maybe you've heard the story before, if you've been around church much at all, or I've shared on it several times over the years here, but it's known as the story of the prodigal son. It's really the story of the prodigal sons, because there are two sons in the story. It's just that we don't know the outcome for one of the sons, and we know it for the other, but it's intentionally a story about two sons. But here's what you need to know. Before Jesus gets to this story, he tells two other stories to the religious leaders that are there. The elite, the ones who know the law of Moses and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're all gathered there. And Jesus is actually going to tell two parables, and he's actually building them up. He's like, he's priming them for the third story. So here's the first story that he tells in a nutshell, and he starts this way, Luke 15, verses 1 through 3. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. How many notorious sinners do we have in the room? Don't make me point to you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, I know there's a bunch of us in, in here. Other notorious sinners came often to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. There was this shepherd, and the shepherd had a hundred sheep. He had them all enclosed and cared for, but one of the sheep ran off. 
And so the shepherd left the 99 who were safe and secure, and he went off to look for the one sheep that had run away. And he searched, and he searched, and he searched, and he searched, and he finally found it. He picks it up. He puts it on his shoulders. He carries it all the way home. And when he gets home, he is so excited that he found the lost sheep that he calls all of his friends and neighbors and says, come over to my house. We're going to have a party. My sheep that was lost has been found, and we're going to barbecue a different sheep for a party basically. And, and here's how he ends this parable. He says these words in Luke 15, 7, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over the 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. That there's something unique about the celebration of the lost thing being brought back home. So you get it, right? Like, you guys could celebrate livestock being returned. And he tells a second parable. And the second parable is about a woman who loses one of ten coins that she has. And the ten coins really represent um, roughly ten weeks of wages. And so she lost one of them, which is a big deal, in particular, as it appears, for a single woman who is trying to make her way in the world. And so she is frantically searching for the coin. She doesn't even wait for morning. She lights a lamp and she uses that lamp all night long to look for the coin that she's lost. And when she finds the coin, she is so elated. She invites all of her friends over and she's like, let's celebrate the coin that I lost has been found by lamplight. And so Jesus really sort of sets them up. This is what he says at the end of this parable, Luke 15, 10, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. So, so you understand, right, religious leaders, Pharisees, Jewish community, you understand that um, the celebration over lost livestock and it being found again, that's a big deal. You throw a party too. And, and you understand that if you lost this much money and you found it again, that would be worthy of celebrating. So surely you would get this next story about people. And so he tells the parable of two sons. There was a father who had two sons. And one of the sons says to the father, Dad, I want my inheritance now. It, literally, what he's saying, to be really clear, is, Dad, I'm tired of waiting for you to die. So would you be willing to just give me the inheritance now so I don't have to wait around till you finally kick off? Because I want to do some things now. And instead of arguing with him, dad says, okay. And so they separate out his portion of livestock and land and whatever it is, and they liquidate all of those things, and they send him away with the money that represents what his inheritance would have been in all the other ways. And he takes off for a faraway land, specifically speaking, a Gentile land, a non-Jewish land, and he takes off for that land, and he just begins to live it up. I mean, he is doing everything that he wants to do. And eventually, all the money runs out, and surprisingly, at that same moment, all of his friends run out also. And he is alone, and a famine hits the land. And so he goes searching for a job. He finds a employment with a farmer, and this farmer is a Gentile farmer, and he happens to have pigs. And so his job specifically is taking care of the pigs, which is an appalling thing if you're in the Jewish community. But it isn't just that he's taking care of pigs. He is also living with the pigs, and he is also starving to death, and so he's longing to eat the food that the pigs are eating. 
and this is where he has ended up. He is as unclean as unclean gets in the Jewish community. And one day, in a moment of clarity and sanity, he has this thought that even though I've been so offensive towards my dad, even though I've gotten myself into this situation, even though I placed myself here, here's what I know for sure, that my dad treats his servants better than I've ever been treated here. I should at least try and go home. And so he begins to come up with his sales pitch when he gets home. It's authentic. It's genuine. It's actually what he believes and what he wants to say to his dad. But his pitch is going to go something like this. And you can envision him because he says it to himself before he ever says it to his dad. Like he's standing in front of the mirror and rehearsing this thing. Dad, I'm an idiot. Like I went and squandered everything. And I don't deserve to be your son. But if you would at least allow me to be a servant in your house that would be better. That would be a blessing. I don't know that my dad's going to go for this, but at least it's worth a try. And so he begins the journey back home. And on his way back home, he approaches the gate to the property. I grew up on a farm, and uh, we have the gate on our property, right? And it has a cattle guard on it, which a cattle guard is just a thing that goes across the ground. And whenever someone drives over it, it makes this noise. So you can hear them coming. And if a cow gets stuck in it, you know it, and you don't like it. But he's crossing the property line. He's coming in through the gate. And as he's coming in through the gate, I'm going to pick the story up here in Luke 15, 20. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. He has to be a little bit surprised at this moment, but he wants to get his sales pitch out. He wants his dad to know how bad he feels, what he's done, and only what he's asking for. And so he begins to launch into what he had prepared to say. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. That's the first half of what he's prepared to say. But his dad doesn't even let him finish. Here's what his dad says. That's great. Shut up. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. But dad, you don't know where I've been. Dad, you don't, you don't realize that I've been covered in pig manure. I've been covered in pig slop. I've been surrounded by pigs. I'm unclean for X number of days. I mean, according to the religious law, and his dad doesn't even care about any of that. The only thing dad cares about is that his son has come home in genuine repentance because that's the son's responsibility. But when we do that, we get the same response from the father every single time. And I would tell you this. When you do that in the family of God, you should also get the same response every single time. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. If you knew everything I had done and every place I had been and every thought I had this week, maybe you wouldn't want me around either. But what I've discovered is that there's a father who runs to me every time I cross that property line and he sees me. And he comes running 
to embrace me. And it matters that I acknowledge where I've been and what I've done, but what I experience every single time just by returning, which, by the way, is what the word repentance means, to turn again, to turn back towards. I find a father who says, welcome home for the holidays. We're going to party and celebrate together. I did hear a kid like, yay, party which we should all actually feel. Here's how I would say it. When we return home, he rejoices over us every single time. Every time. A few years ago, I came across a passage in Isaiah. It's Isaiah 65, and if you've ever read the book of Isaiah, it's filled with prophecies, declarations of judgment, the desire of God for his people to repent and return, but really it's describing you got yourselves into this mess and this is what's happening as a result of it and this is what I would hope would happen, but you continue to make the same mistakes over and over and over again and you could read the whole thing and I've often read it as just a prophecy of a declaration of all the bad things that are happening and are going to happen because of the spot that we got ourselves into. But I read this passage a few years ago and something leapt out to me that had never leapt out to me before. Isaiah 65 verses 1 and 2. The Lord says, I was ready to respond, but no one asked for help. I was ready to be found, but no one was looking for me. I said, and it's emphatic, here I am, here I am, to a nation that did not call on my name. Now listen to this. All day long, I opened my arms to a rebellious people, but they follow their own evil paths and their own crooked schemes. I realized that this God that I see described in the New Testament in the story of the prodigal son or the lost sheep or the soldier or the leper was actually the same God in the Old Testament. In fact, what he's clearly stating is that I was doing everything in my power to let you know where I was. I was waiting for you to call on me. And you know the posture that I was in while I was waiting for you to just respond? It was this. I think about my own kids. Not that they're ever in rebellion, but if they were ever in rebellion and were doing something that I didn't want them to do, and that level of frustration that you start to feel, I don't feel it, but I know you do, when your kids are really irritating you, and he's describing exactly that, this rebellion. I'm talking to you, can't you hear me? And yet the entire time, he is standing with his arms stretched wide, just waiting for them to stand up so that he can embrace them. He's inviting them to come home for the holidays. That when, when we respond to him, he has the same response to us every single time. We feel the embrace of the Father. He saves a seat for us in eternity. And what we actually experience is exactly what Jesus is offering when his arms are spread on the cross. It's an invitation from the cross of Isaiah 65. I stand all day long with my arms spread wide, extending an invitation for you to come home because there's always a seat for you at the table. There's always a place for you by the fire. There's always a present for you under the gift and if you would, under, the, under the tree. And if you would just return to me, you would experience all of it. Don't be afraid. 
I got you. Which is also true of the body of Christ. You and I towards one another. I invite you to stand with us. Here's how I would say it. When we return to him, he receives us with open arms. You know, this week, um, from just me personally, um, has been a challenging week, maybe one of the most challenging weeks of this year. And every now and then, I kind of get in this pastor pity party, you know? Like, man, if you knew what I had to give up, if you knew the sacrifices I was making, and then every now and then the Lord just reminds me, like, really? Because I can tell you it's really dangerous. I, I can say this because I'm a pastor. <laughs> It's really dangerous for pastors to begin to believe that they are uniquely sacrificing for all of you schlep rocks. <laughs> because I'm not uniquely sacrificing. I'm doing what the Lord has asked of me, just like you do what the Lord has asked of you. But for all of us, it doesn't even come close to comparing to what he's already done for us. And the moment that I begin to believe that I am somehow uniquely sacrificing, I need to be really careful because I may start to think I'm your savior too. And I'm not that either. We all need what we are celebrating in this season, the birth of a baby boy born into this world. And that baby boy ultimately becomes the gate through which we enter into a relationship with the Father. He becomes the light through which we can search and be found. He becomes the shepherd who comes out and finds us in the middle of the field. That baby boy ultimately becomes everything described in these parables to you and I. So we're going to do is celebrate in communion today as we wrap our service up here. And as they go into this song, I'm going to invite you to step out from where you're at. There are communion tables in the front. There are also tables in the back. And grab the elements. And in a moment, we're going to come back together and we're going to close out our service today celebrating in communion. Go ahead and step out from where you're at and grab the elements. Luke chapter 15. As Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. The party has started back at the house for the son who has returned. Celebration is going on, and the older son, the one who had stayed, the one who had been faithful, is wondering what's happening up at the house, because there wasn't a party planned for today. And he's told by one of the servants that your brother's come home. And so they're throwing it down at the house. There's a celebration going on. You should come in. And he wants nothing to do with it. That guy doesn't deserve it. Why would you do that for him? Here's what's so interesting, and this is the cliffhanger that you're left with in the story intentionally by Jesus. The father doesn't just wait for the one son to come home, but he leaves the house, he leaves the party, and he goes to the other son as well. And he extends the invitation to come into the celebration. Listen, this isn't just for your brother. This is also for you. You could come in for the holidays, just like he has, that this isn't exclusive. And I'm pleading with you, I'm contending with you, and we're left with this moment in which this older brother has to make a decision about whether he needs the same thing that his younger brother needed. And that is an invitation from the father to come in to the celebration. And Jesus, when he gathers together with his disciples for what we commemorate, what we celebrate in this moment, Jesus is actually making a declaration 
that he is the lamp that you can find what you've lost by utilizing, that he is the gate by which you can enter the property and come home again, that he is the shepherd who goes out searching for you, that he is also the representative of the father who runs to you and the father who comes out to you when you won't come in to him. That he has made a pathway forever for all of us. And we have to decide, will I come home for the holidays? Will I come home for all days? And so that night in which he's going to be betrayed for us, and that next day when he is going to sacrifice for us, he takes the bread and the cup that are at the table and he says, here's what this bread is. It's my body which is broken for you. And as often as you eat this bread, I want you to remember that my body is going to be beaten and crucified so that you could experience wholeness and life forever. And then he takes the cup. This is really, really important because it's an invitation that does not end. That this is my blood which is shed for you. It's not like the blood of bulls and goats, which were just temporary representations of an eternal reality that was coming. This is the eternal reality itself, that the Father who stands with his arms held wide is still standing with his arms held wide, that the gateway onto the property is always going to be the gateway onto the property, that the shepherd is always going to be the shepherd who's out rescuing the sheep, that the Father is going to come to you when you're standing in the field, and it's going to happen forever for you. And that you and I just have to decide, will we receive what he has already made available? That this cup is the blood of a brand new covenant. A covenant made by the shedding of my own blood, but made forever by the shedding of my own blood. Jesus, we say thank you that the bookends of your life here on earth begin with light dawning on us, light being born into the world, but that you came with a purpose and with a mission to reveal the heart of a father to us. And what we ask is that on this end of it, as we celebrate your death and your resurrection until the day that you return, may we run home for the holidays always. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Prayer ministry teams are going to be available on both sides. Hey, listen. All of you naysayers who didn't want any Christmas music until after Thanksgiving, it's after Thanksgiving, it's December. Prepare your hearts to rejoice this Christmas time. Grace and peace to you. We love you guys. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.